In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Today's epistle and gospel are connected in a way that's not apparent at first glance. In the gospel, the Pharisee brags to God about his religious practice, while the tax collector confesses that he is a sinner. St. Paul, who wrote the epistle, was formerly Saul the Pharisee, but he became a penitent. Thus, his life, over the stretch of his life, illustrates both the self-righteousness of the gospel Pharisee and the penitential justifying faith of the tax collector. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, St. Paul gives his former religious resume. He says that he was concerning the law a Pharisee, concerning the righteousness which is in the law blameless. This sounds a little bit like the prayer of our gospel Pharisee. But Saul the Pharisee met Jesus on the road to Damascus, and he refers to this encounter in today's epistle, making the case for the historical fact of the resurrection. St. Paul says that the risen Christ was seen by James and then by all the apostles, and last of all, he was seen by me as by one born out of due time, for I am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. This sounds a little bit more like our gospel tax collector. This raises some questions about religion. Before Christ, Saul the Pharisee fasted, prayed, went to the temple regularly, just like the Pharisee in the gospel. How can they do these good and religious things and yet miss the point of them. Some people argue that the indictment of the religion of the Pharisees in the New Testament means that Jesus meant to do away with what is sometimes called organized religion. In fact, the New Testament favorably depicts a number of Jews who did all the things that the gospel Pharisee did. For example, the parents of John the Baptist, Zacharias and Elizabeth, are described by St. Luke as righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. And St. Luke presents this as a good thing. Jesus' own family, is described as very devout, observant Jews who went to the synagogue every Sabbath and then went to Jerusalem for the required feasts and likely also did all the things the gospel Pharisee did. Jesus himself, in his verbal assault on the Pharisees in Matthew 23, which was our morning prayer Old Testament lesson today, commended both their teaching and their meticulous practice of tithing. What he condemned was their hypocrisy. What was their hypocrisy? It was a lack of alignment between their outward religious observance and the inward disposition of their heart. They had a religious veneer that covered up their sin 
and they refused to face and confess their sin when Jesus confronted them with it. As Jesus said in Matthew 23:25, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of extortion and self-indulgence. Religion can be a cover that hides sin within, but this does not mean that religion has to be that way, nor does it mean that it is better to create our own religion than it is to practice the faith that is once delivered to the saints, for our own religion can cover up our sin just as well as the tradition. It means that we must always strive for an alignment between our outward practices, the inward disposition of our hearts, and our daily behavior. And since we will never get these three in complete alignment, we'll never get it perfect until the day of resurrection, it means that when we come to church, we should freely acknowledge our sins and failures. And we should say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The example of St. Paul highlights both the error and the solution. The religion of Saul the Pharisee was not an outward expression of a genuine interior relationship with the living God. On the road to Damascus, Saul the Pharisee met the living God. His encounter with the risen and glorified Christ converted his heart and changed his religious practice. He did not abandon his religion but his religion came to be rooted in a new relationship with the person of Jesus. Philippians 3, quoted above to describe St. Paul's former false righteousness, goes on to describe Paul's new righteousness in Christ. St. Paul writes in Philippians 3, verses 8 through 11, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God through faith, that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain unto the resurrection of the dead. The change here is from a religion focused on zeal for outward religious observances to a religion focused on knowing Christ. St. Paul describes continuously in his epistles the essence of this new religion as being a participation in the death and resurrection of Jesus, which means dying to sin through the continual practice of repentance and rising to new life through the continual grace of the Holy Spirit. The outward practice of religion alone can become a means of avoiding what is really going on within me. My zeal 
for right doctrine, liturgy, and morality, and my opposition to heretics, false worship, and sin, can subtly change the focus of my religion. I take my eyes off of Christ and away from the sin that Christ reveals in me, and I start to focus entirely on how bad they are. By a subtle and sometimes unwitting implication, I start to assume how right I am also, by contrast. It doesn't take long for me to get self-righteously angry at all the evil people out there. And this causes me to lose sight of the only evil I can really conquer, which is the sin in my own heart. <clears throat> we see the danger of pharisaical religion in the message of the risen Christ to the church in Ephesus in the first century. Christ said to this church in Revelation chapter 2, verses 2 through 4, I know your works, your labor, and your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil, and that you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Jesus goes on to say in Revelation chapter 2 that if the first century Christians in Ephesus don't repent, he's going to take their church away. Like, like wow. Patience, opposition to evil, <clears throat> orthodox doctrine, perseverance, labor without becoming weary. And yet none of this will matter. They will cease to be a church if they do not turn back to Jesus and begin to love him and to love each other in him as Jesus commanded them to do. Notice again here that Jesus doesn't tell them to abandon patience, virtue, right doctrine, perseverance, or labor for the kingdom. But without an integral connection of these outward practices to love for Jesus and others, religion becomes a merely outward thing that does not produce the interior fruit of the Spirit within us. The point for us is pretty straightforward. Our religion must be rooted in a living relationship with God the Father through Jesus in the Spirit. Error and pride creep in when we take our eyes off of Jesus and begin to focus mainly on other people instead. We keep our focus on Jesus in our prayer. He reveals to each of us what is wrong in our lives. He leads us into good confessions and to the grace of forgiveness, into new experiences of dying and rising with him. <clears throat> he shows us where we failed to love and he gives us grace to do better in the future. As we persevere in this relationship 
and conversation of prayer, we grow from spiritual infants into mature Christians who are more like Christ. Our spiritual growth is our authentic witness to Christ and our one real contribution to the battle against evil in the world. Our encounter with Jesus also gives us the gift of humility. It's not that we won't see the sins of other people, but our focus will change from mere judgment. It will begin to include a note of compassion. Just as we will accept God's mercy for ourselves, so we will begin to want God's mercy for others. We will still oppose the evil, but we will be much more aware of our own participation in it. As Jesus said, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Thus, as we approach the altar on the Lord's day, let us open our eyes to see Jesus and to see ourselves more clearly in the light of his presence. Let us say, God, be merciful unto me, a sinner, <clears throat> that we may both go home justified and also go home ready to love Christ and each other and other people in new ways. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost.